Revelation chapter 21, and that we're looking at the uh, Full Prayers of a Damnable Heresy, part 5. And today we're going to finally get to Revelation 21 and the new heavens and the new earth. We're going to discuss that. And today's very, very, and we've got to finish up on the judgment. But today's very important because I'm going to have preliminary considerations where really I take a lot of application. We're going to talk about biblical interpretation and hermeneutics and deal with a lot of important issues. Oh, it's number six. Okay. This is part six. Now I saw a new heaven and an earth. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven, saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And I'll stop there, because I'm... I'll get to that in a minute. We just have a little bit on the final judgment. <clears throat> in verse 12b, uh, we'll, we'll look a little bit on the final judgment, and then we're going to get to the new heavens and the new earth, and that's where we have to get into hermeneutics or biblical interpretation. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things that were written in the books. And the meaning of the verse is very plain. Everything people have done, whether good or bad, is going to be evaluated by Jesus Christ in the day of judgment. <clears throat> The only hope of escaping the curse of the law is to believe in the person and work of Christ. And if you look to Christ for salvation, your sin and guilt is imputed to the Savior on the cross, and the penalty that you deserved is paid for in full. So you can escape this by becoming a Christian. The standard of the judgment will be the revealed will of God, in particular God's moral law. The infallible word of the living God is the rule of life and revelation of salvation given to mankind. It contains the perfect, righteous, holy standard that reveals God's nature and character as well as the only right way to live. There are never any good or valid reasons for disobeying God's law. So if you want to redefine what a man is or you want to redefine, you know, say that homosexuality is okay or bestiality or whatever... Well, you're wrong, because the word of God is true, and you're wrong. God, can't, God cannot lie. God's law reflects his nature and character. <clears throat> there are never any good reasons such as ignorance or circumstance or temptation or being taught the wrong things from youth. Sincere beliefs that contradict the Bible and the moral law are still sinful and wicked in God's sight and are worthy of judgment. The Bible, however, does indicate that those who possess the truth and had certain biblical advantages will receive greater punishment for sin that flows from apostasy than people who were never exposed to the written revelation of God. And you want to see Luke 12, 47 to 48. Jesus is he's talking about the responsibility of Israel being rejecting their Messiah and being apostate. And he says, some will be beaten with many stripes, some will be beaten with few stripes. You had the word of God. You had the truth. You rejected it. You apostatized you're going to receive a greater judgment than some guy in a spear in the middle of South America who's never heard the gospel. God is just. People who completely are ignorant of Scripture and the gospel will still be held to account because they continually violate the work of the law written in their hearts. Romans 3, 11, 12, 18, 23, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who does good, no, not one. There is no fear of God before their eyes. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
For all who appear in judgment, entrance into or exclusion from heaven will depend on the question whether they are clothed with the righteousness of Christ or not. Good works don't do it. Good works are tainted with sin. And good works don't erase past sins. You need Christ. All those who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ have made a covenant with death and an agreement with hell. And then we come to the punishment. The punishment for sin at the second coming is being cast into the lake of fire, which is the second death. <clears throat> Revelation 20, verse 14. In 2 Thessalonians, it is called everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. 1.9. Some scholars believe that the lake of fire is different than hell, being the final place, and being a worse place than hell. Most, however, believe it is just a vivid description of the same place. This is the position of the Westminster Larger Catechism, which says this, Then both body and soul shall be cast out of the favorable presence of God and the glorious fellowship with Christ, his saints, and all the holy angels into hell, to be punished with unspeakable torments, both of body and soul, with the devil and his angels forever. That's answer to question 89. For those who do see a difference between hell and the lake of fire, they believe hell is a prison for damned souls, while the lake of fire is the permanent place of punishment for both body and soul. So there are people that believe both. Larger Catechism, by the way, explicitly condemns full preterism there by noting punishment for both body and soul. <coughs> In any case, the descriptions of the place of punishment for unbelievers and all apostates is terrifying. This is one of the most difficult doctrines. This is one of the hardest things to believe. We have to believe it because it's in the Bible. And of course, we have to take comfort. God is just. The guy who's faithful to his wife, who's a plumber, who doesn't believe in Christ and goes to hell for his sins, will certainly not receive punishment like Adolf Hitler, or, or Charles Manson, or Osama bin Laden, or uh, Joe Biden, who will receive a much greater punishment for their wick super wickedness. <clears throat> Jesus called it a place of torments, Luke 16, 22 to 33, that occurs after the resurrection of condemnation, John 5, 29. Peter and Jude describe it as being under chains of, chains of or under darkness, 2 Peter 2, 4, Jude 6. It is also described as a bottomless pit, Revelation 9, 2, literally in Greek, the pit of the abyss. And Isaiah 14.15 seems to indicate possible side compartments in the pit, like a prison. Isaiah 14.15, especially the King James Version. You'll be cast into the sides of the pit, it says. Jesus repeatedly referred to hell as Gehenna, which was the same spot the Jews had sacrificed their infants to Molech. Jeremiah 7.32-33, Mark 9.43-49, which in his day was a garbage dump right outside Jerusalem. It was a garbage dump. Therefore, he alluded to Isaiah 66, 24, saying it is a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Mark 9, 43, 49. Where there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 13, 40 to 42. Revelation 14, 10. They are be tormented with fire and brimstone. Brimstone, sulfur. Burning sulfur. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. 
Those who reject the light will be cast into the outer darkness. Matthew 25, 30. It is a place without hope, without joy, without pleasure, without comfort, without peace or happiness. Outside the new order are dogs, unbelievers, sorcerers and sexually immoral, murderers and idolaters, and whoever loves and practices a lie. Revelation 22, 1-5. This is what the Bible says. It's absolutely true. It is terrifying. You need to believe in Christ. You need to flee to Christ. Otherwise, you're exposed to this wrath. <clears throat> the Bible teaches that a time is coming when the forces of evil are completely eliminated and receive their just recompense of reward. Full preterists deny this. For they believe that everything happened in AD 70 and evil continues on forever. Now, some speculate, I've read some, a lot of, I read a bunch of books about 15 years ago or so, uh, and they speculate, well, maybe God will eliminate someday. But the Bible doesn't speak about it because they believe everything happened in AD 70, so everything continues on as it was before. So there's suffering, there's evil, there's death, there's pain, there's crying, there's tears. All this terrible stuff that's going on continues. They don't have an end time. Blessed, happy, and joyful are those who on the day of judgment are declared righteous in the court of the king due to the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. If you believe in Jesus and his perfect work of redemption, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Consequently, you are safe and secure in Christ. Now we come <coughs> to the end of the world and the consummation of the ages. 21, 1-8. I saw the new heavens and the new earth, the first heaven had passed away. The first earth that passed away, there was also no more sea. I, John, saw the holy city in Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. Kind of sounds like Eden again, where God walked and talked with Adam. God's going to be back with us, walking. Jesus will be right with us. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain. For the former things have passed away. Then he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. <clears throat> so we have introduction and preliminary considerations. Now, just a, just a quick note. Whenever you see these passages, eschatology, the end times, the description of the final judgment, the description of the final resurrection, the, the description of... Um, being cast in the lake of fire. What is the whole point of all of it? For us to be more serious and godly about our walk with Christ. The point of eschatology, the point of prophecy and so forth, is not so we can have prophecy conferences and get all excited and think, well, maybe Saddam Hussein's the Antichrist or whatever. The point is, is to be godly and to be more serious about following Christ. God warns us about the coming time of judgment, so we'll be more diligent. After the final judgment... John has another vision, which gives us a glimpse of salvation fully realized and perfected. 
The second coming of Christ will usher in a world free of all the effects of the fall. The old order and age have come to an end. <clears throat> Redemptive history is brought to completion. The present creation will be set free from its bondage to decay, Romans 8, 19-22, as Christ's definitive victory at the cross and empty tomb, which has progressively leavened the earth throughout the New Covenant era, throughout history, is fully consummated. It is the end of the world, because it forever will close and put to an end the former worldly order. All the elect have been saved. And the non-elect together with Satan and his minions have been cast into the lake of fire. For all believers in Christ, the times of affliction, persecution, and sorrow give way to eternal joy. And ultimate communion with Christ in his presence will behold the face of God, the beatific vision. Christ will dwell with his people literally, not simply in their hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit, but literally now, the full preterist rejects the standard Christian interpretation of this passage in favor of an A.D. 70 fulfillment. In order to properly analyze the great errors of the full preterist position, there are a number of things that we need to consider that will help us have an orthodox, balanced interpretation. This is very important. I know this it may not be the most exciting stuff, but this is super important. We have to look at hermeneutics or biblical interpretation and certain things to understand why the full preterists go so far astray. First, prophecy is one of the more difficult areas of interpretation for a few reasons. It's difficult. That's one reason there are so many different schools of eschatology. Number one, the Old Testament does not set forth prophetic events in a highly organized, easy manner, but will set things near at hand next to things in the distant future with virtually no distinction. Prophecy does that. For example, Old Testament prophecy at times does not clearly distinguish between our Lord's state of humiliation and his post-atonement, post-resurrection state of exaltation. Moreover, there is no clear Old Testament distinction between the first and second coming of Christ. There is theologically, but you read this and it's not clearly laid out. It's not systematic. For this reason, most ancient Jewish scholars saw only one unitary coming in which the Messiah would conquer the covenant people's enemies and usher in a great period of dominion for the Messianic king and his people on earth. Remember Jesus' ministry. They wanted to make him king right now. They wanted him to go out and conquer the Romans. That's not what the kingdom of God is about. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's spread by the preaching of the gospel, the sword that precedes out of the mouth of the white horse rider. It's not a literal thing but the Jews had it all wrong. Consequently, they ignored the passages about humiliation, suffering, and a vicarious death, and focused on victory and a completed kingdom. Unfortunately, <coughs> the erroneous outlook of the Jews has affected Christian interpreters and really is kind of where we get premillennialism, especially dispensational premillennialism. Dispensational premillennialists teach that uh, the Jews blew it. They rejected Christ as their earthly king, and so he went went to plan B, which is ridiculous. Christ never came to establish an earthly kingdom, uh, a carnal kingdom. He came to establish a spiritual kingdom of grace. So the Jews had it wrong, and Chileists or premillennialists, dispensationalists have it wrong as well. Number two, 
prophecy often comes in the form of poetic, hyperbolic, or apocalyptic language. <clears throat> Therefore, one must carefully examine how terms and expressions are used in the Old Testament prophecy to understand their meaning. It is wrong to take poetic symbols literally, and it is also wrong to argue that such expressions must only apply to one event when Scripture uses them for many separate judgments. For example, Matthew 24, coming on the clouds, and all these expressions that come from Old Testament judgments are applied very specifically by Jesus to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. People ignore how it's used in the Old Testament, and they go, oh, this has to be a reference to the second coming, when it's not. It's a judgment. It's a coming in judgment. It's not a literal bodily coming. The full preterist insistence that all language regarding judgment and the coming of Christ in the New Testament must only be applied to the destruction of Israel in AD 70, not only often ignores context, but how prophecies were given in the Old Testament. <clears throat> They want to say everything in the New Testament has to apply to AD 70. Well, these ter a lot of these terms are used in the Old Testament, and they refer to different judgments. Why can't they refer to different things in the New Testament? Number three, and this applies more to premillennialism, the Old Testament prophecies present the great advances of the kingdom in the New Covenant era using Old Testament imagery. The New Covenant Church is presented as Zion, Jerusalem, and the Temple, etc. The failure to recognize this fact has resulted in serious errors among dispensational premillennialists. They believe the Temple is going to be rebuilt, and there's going to be sacrifices offered in the millennium, which is just absurd. That would be blasphemous, because Christ is the perfect sacrifice. God ripped the veil of the Temple from top to bottom and destroyed the Temple. It's, that's done. And then second... <clears throat> To make Israel and its destruction the chief end of prophecy regarding Christ's salvific kingdom ignores the role of Israel in prophecy and Christian theology. It greatly, this is really important, it greatly overemphasizes Israel's importance in God's plan of redemption. The Mosaic administration of the covenant of grace was always intended to be preparatory for the new covenantal administration. And therefore it had to be temporary in history, not the finality in history. They want to turn it into the finality. It's not. The Mosaic administration comes in between the promise to Abraham and its fulfillment in Christ to be a schoolmaster leading men to Christ. When he discusses the gospel and its relevance, Paul focuses on the promise made to Abraham. Romans 5, 20, Galatians 3, 6 and following. And he notes that Abraham is the father of all believers, whether Jewish or Gentile. Romans 4, 11. The children of the promise, which are Abraham's offspring, refers to every person in the whole world, planet Earth, who believed the gospel. Romans 9, 6 to 8, Galatians 4, 31, 5, 6, 6, 16. The New Testament, which is given to the multinational Church of Christ, is not an intermezzo or an interlude. It is the goal and finality of Revelation, the direct fulfillment and continuation of the Old Testament scriptures. Although Israel was part of God's plan and therefore was crucial, Paul says in Romans, yet yeah, to them was given the oracles of God. They had the Bible, they had the word of God. 
The end of the nation of Israel as God's covenant people is not the end of the world or the end or climax of Jesus' kingdom of grace. It's not. It's a judgment on Israel. It's the end of that age, not the end of the new covenant age. It obviously is not the finality or end of Christ's salvific kingdom. To confuse the end of the Mosaic administration or the destruction of Israel with the end of everything prophesied is supremely unscriptural and irrational. The destruction of Israel was, as we've noted before, near the beginning of the millennium, the reign of Christ, and was necessary to usher in the time of the Gentiles when the gospel would spread throughout planet Earth. The destruction of Israel which was a case of the, our Lord coming in judgment, not a literal bodily coming, which is what God promised in Acts 1, 9-11, points us to the future second literal bodily coming. We've noted this before. All the days of the Lord in the Old Testament point us to the day of the Lord, capital letters, when Christ comes back. And current, the New Covenant era, in its current, current history comes to an end. The judgment in AD 70, number one, was local, not universal. Two, national, not worldwide. Three, to the Jews, not all the nations. Four, accomplished while Jesus was still in heaven, not in person, which is what is promised. It proved the glorification and enthronement of Christ, that the Jews, that Jesus was now king and was now progressively conquering the nations by the sword that proceeds out of his mouth, the word of God. And, of course, his iron rod of judgment, Matthew 24, 30, Revelation 19, 15, Psalm 2, 7 to 12, Psalm 110, 1 to 7. Five, it's the end of the Jewish age, not the New Covenant era. Are people still being saved by Christ today? Yes, they are. Has Christ returned bodily and had the final judgment and set up the eternal state? No, he has not. We're still in the New Covenant age. That's kind of obvious. Moreover, the full preterist paradigm places the end before the fulfillment of the prophecies that promise gospel victory among the nations before the second coming of Christ. See Malachi 1.11, Isaiah 2, 1-4, 11.9, 49.23, 65.17-23, Psalm 2, 7 and following, 22, 27 to 28, 86.9, 72.8-6, 110.1 following, Matthew 13, 31 to 33, 1 Corinthians 15, 25 to 28. There's all these prophecies that were not fulfilled by A.D. 70. Dozens of them. What, are we just supposed to ignore them or redefine those? The tiny mustard seed, Jesus said, must grow into a great tree. That little bit of yeast must live on the whole lump of dough. Matthew 13, 33. Kings and queens will submit to the church of Christ and give their riches to support her. Isaiah 49, 23. None of these things occurred before A.D. 70. While it is true that during the first generation of the church, A.D. 30 to 70, that first generation, the gospel was preached throughout the Roman Empire and churches were planted in Syria, Asia Minor, because we know they were in Israel, Greece or Macedonia, and possibly North Africa. Uh, in Matthew twenty four fourteen, Jesus said the gospel is going to be preached throughout the civilized world, the Roman world, 
before the end of the Jews comes, before the destruction of Israel comes. Romans 1.8, Acts 24.5. While that is all true, no nations, cultures, law orders, or leaders of nations were even remotely Christian by AD 70. None of the, none of the whether you're positive amillennialist or whether you're a post-millennialist, whether you're a historic post-millennialist or whether you're the more modern Ken Gentry post-millennialist or Greg Bonson post-millennialist, which is what I am. Um, none of those prophecies have ha happened yet by AD 70. Not one nation was Christian. Not one king offered obeisance to Christ. The great kingdom prophecies were not yet fulfilled. And this fact cannot be denied without rewriting history. Further, Jesus spoke very clearly about the bridegroom being delayed, staying in a far country for a long time, Matthew 25, 5, 13, and 19. In addition, the wheat and the tares, tares are weeds that when they're younger look just like wheat. You can't distinguish them. You have to wait till they put seeds out to know that, you have to look at their fruit to know the difference. Must grow together throughout history until the harvest, Jesus said, Matthew 13, 30. And that doesn't simply apply to the Jews, that applies to the whole world. It is simply impossible to reconcile the many prophecies in both the Old and New Testaments that describe things that must happen before the second bodily coming of Christ. So what do they have to do? They have to either ignore those or completely rewrite them or apply them to Israel somehow. Or to or the events that happened before Israel was destroyed. And that's just simply impossible. Remember, the analogy of Scripture. That's why full preterism is so stupid. It's a stupid heresy. I know they're very sophisticated. And they, I've debated a guy, and he, he cleaned my clock. I debated a guy like 15 years ago. I, I was not prepared. Uh, I, my, I didn't have my notes, and I, I did a pretty bad job. But they have sophisticated arguments. Third, We must be aware how the Bible uses the language of recreation and newness to describe Christ's salvation in a definitive, progressive, and ultimate sense. This is very important. If you don't understand this, you'll make all kinds of mistakes. This point is crucial for the full preterist. Failure to consider this distinction leads them to try and fit all recreation or new heaven and earth passages into a 70 AD paradigm. The scriptures can speak of recreation and newness as it relates to personal, corporate, or cosmic salvation in different manners. For example, here's in 1st 2 Corinthians 5.17 we are told, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, when Paul says all things have passed away, he uses the aorist tense, indicating the definitive moment the person was regenerated and believed in Christ. The moment you believe, the moment you're born again and believe, you're saved. Then when he says they have become new, he switches to the perfect tense, indicating they become new and continue to be new. The person who is born again and justified is then progressively sanctified throughout life. <coughs> a Christian is declared righteous solely due to the righteousness of Christ. But in his life, he must still wage warfare against the flesh, 
the old man, the evil present with me, Paul says, Romans 7.21, <coughs> the law of sin in my members, Romans 7.23. That's what Paul says. <coughs> Judicially, the believer is righteous in God's sight, but while we are in our earthly fallen bodies, ethical perfection in our personal behavior is unattainable. First John, if we say we have no sin, we call God a liar. He's talking to Christians. If you say you've, received, you've achieved sinless perfection, you're a liar. And then he goes on to talk about, yeah, we need to confess our sins to Christ. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us all our sins. We have to confess our sins every day. <clears throat> we study the scriptures, we attend all the means of grace, but still must confess our sins every single day. There is continued growth and sanctification, but not perfection. That's a heresy of Wesley. This idea that you can achieve a state of perfection in this life, the second, so-called second blessing, which led to the charismatic movement, by the way. <clears throat> it's a heresy. It is only at the resurrection of our bodies when we are glorified that the new creation is fully realized. Yes, your soul, when it goes to heaven, is sinless. But your body is rotting in the grave. It's only when your body and soul are reunited and you have a perfect body that salvation is completed. Our union with Christ departs a new life, a new creation that is real and transforming. But this divine work is not completed and perfected until the second bodily coming of Christ. Paul says, Romans 8.30, Those whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, he, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Glorification refers to Corinthians 15. The perfection. The body and soul are perfected when Christ returns. In the Old Testament, for example, Isaiah 65, 17-25, the coming of the Messiah is described as producing a new heavens and a new earth. This is the same expression we're going to see in Revelation 21.1. But the passage in Isaiah is not referring to the eternal state, but to the great renovation in the existing course of affairs on earth produced by Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, a lot of commentators say, well, it originally referred in a very limited sense to Israel, Israel's restoration, and but it really, the main application is to the blessings of the coming of Christ in the New Covenant era, the great blessings he brings. The worldwide spread of biblical Christianity will sanctify nations and peoples, resulting in great social ethical progress with the accompanying economic and social benefits that come with service to Christ and a biblical law order. We know that the Isaiah passage is not referring to the eternal state because the section of Scripture refers to things such as birth, aging, death, sin, and the sanctions that are a consequence of sin or covenant breaking. It's talked about in the passage very clearly. It talks about building houses and planting vineyards and all this stuff. It says if you're 100 years old and you die, that's going to be considered in the future, in this blessed age. That's going to be considered a terrible thing like dying way too young. But just as the great truths of 2 Corinthians 5.17 indicate much more than regeneration and justification, the language of Isaiah 65.17 cannot be used to restrict the meaning of Revelation 21.1. Yes, 
it's an allusion to Isaiah 65, but it, the context is different. The fact that Jesus makes all things new applies not just to regeneration and sanctification, but also our glorification. Paul has made it clear that union with Christ and his resurrection will result in our pleasant earthly bodies being transformed into our future glorified bodies, 1 Corinthians 15, 20-23. A couple sermons ago, I did a whole sermon on that. I still have some more to go, talking about the nature of the body. But it completely disproves full preterism. You get a resurrected body that's perfect, that cannot sin, that cannot die. The work of Christ does not merely bring a definitive recreation or salvation, or just a progressive personal growth and godliness, and covenant blessings, but also a complete, perfect salvation. Body and soul. Paul, in agreement with Revelation 21.1, makes it clear that Christ's salvation, which presented as a recreation, operates on a cosmic scale. <clears throat> Colossians 1.19.20, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of the cross, through him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. The consummation of all things, the whole fallen created order, is much more than a re renewal and glorified people, but also involves a renewed glorified cosmos. Romans 8, Acts chapter 3, Peter's sermon. He's going to restore all things. Because the creation, God's work, and uh, because the creation is God's work and originally was very good, that's what God says, uh, Genesis 1.31, it could not remain as the booty of Satan or any, even partially under Satan's dominion. But the full preterist leaves it under Satan's dominion. Yeah, they talk about saving souls and people becoming Christians, and they talk about the new birth and all that. But there's never any perfection. There's never there's never any completion. Satan is still active. Satan still is in control of a lot. The definitive victory of Jesus' first coming requires the completion, perfection, glorification, and consummation of the second coming. The present creation is eagerly longing for the revealing of the glorified saints when it will be set free from its bondage to decay. Romans eight nineteen to twenty two. Now, if you're a full preterist, you have to try to explain all that away. Well, it doesn't mean what it says. It simply refers to people getting saved. That's what they have to say. Because for them, everything happened in AD 70. Because the full preterist denies the second bodily coming and the perfection, glorification, and completion of the salvation process, they must teach a few things relating to recreation to uphold their heretical paradigm first. Consummation passages, such as Revelation 21, 1 and following, must be interpreted as only a discussion of Christ's continued saving work in a fallen, sinful, rebellious world. In other words, the analogy of Scripture regarding the full extent or final effect of Christ's redeeming work must be ignored or redefined, because it contradicts an AD 70 fulfillment. Second, the meaning of a new heaven and earth the new heavens and a new earth in Revelation 21.1 cannot be determined by the context, but must be defined by the terms in terms of Isaiah 65.17. So when it talks about no more death, no more crying, no more pain, no more suffering, no more sin, no more law, 
in Revelation 21, uh, that's just hyperbolic language. It doesn't mean what it says, according to the full preterist, because there is still sin, there is still crying, there is still suffering, there is still pain, there is still death. <laughs> After AD 70, isn't that, that's pretty obvious. Look at Ukraine, what's going on right now. <clears throat> we should all be praying for the death of Putin and the destruction of Russia. <clears throat> now, some amillennialists do the same thing, but in the opposite direction. Imposing the meaning of Revelation 21.1 onto Isaiah 65.17. Consequently, they ignore the fact that birth, aging, death, and judgment for sin is clearly referenced in the immediate context of Isaiah 65. I notice this reading Lutheran commentators tend to do that. And I, when I studied on millennialism years ago, they would take the Isaiah 65 passage, a lot of them, and would just interpret it in terms of Revelation 21. They're doing the same thing the full preterist is doing, except in the opposite direction. No, look at the context. What does the context teach? These words have meaning. There's a point here. Because the full preterist rejects the second bodily coming of Christ, the resurrection of the body, and the consummate state where the whole creation is released from all the effects of the fall and forever perfected and glorified, he of logical necessity must redefine salvation as something insufficient. This is why we can say it's a damnable heresy. Not simply because they deny the resurrection of the body, and of course Paul says if you deny the resurrection of the body by implication, you're denying the resurrection of Christ. That's what Paul says, that's not me, that's Paul. But you're denying the nature of salvation itself. You know, Protestants are t fond of talking about how the Mass is blasphemous and the Mass is an explicit denial of the sufficiency and perfection of Christ's death. Full preterists do the same thing, but in a different direction. Christ's salvation is not, they, they is not, with, uh, to them it's, it's really something insufficient. It is much less than what is described in Scripture, and consequently, what has been affirmed in all the Christian creeds and confessions from the very beginning. They deny they believe in salvation without a completion or perfection in history. They call the destruction of Israel in AD 70 the second coming and define the spread of the gospel as the new heavens and the new earth, progressively in history. But there is no completion. There is no perfection. There is no consummation. But the corrupt world system and the fallen order with uh, disease, suffering, pain, heartache, and death continues on theoretically forever. In their system, theoretically it continues forever. That is why they have to teach that before the fall, death and suffering existed. Because they're going to think that's normal in the future. They can only offer speculations about a coming time of perfection without sin, death, and suffering. Some do, some speculate. But according to their own assumptions and interpretations of Scripture, such views are arbitrary and are not based on the Bible or the effect of Jesus' redemption on mankind and the cosmos. Because they, they understand, I think deep down they understand that's a real problem, that there's no consummation, there's no perfection. Salvation is not brought to completion. They realize that's a problem. So some will speculate in their books, well, that, that may happen someday, may, probably it will happen, but the, the scriptures just don't speak to that in their system. It's a terrible doctrine. <clears throat> Remember, the full preterist teaches that Jesus' coming in judgment in AD 70 fulfills all the prophecies regarding Christ's coming and what it accomplishes. 
They have posited a system of salvation that saves some human spirits, leaving their bodies to rot forever like useless trash, which of course is Neoplatonism. But they leave a fallen cosmos, a world in which sin, suffering, and death continue on theoretically forever. Here's a, a great quote from Herman Bovick from Reformed Dogmatics. Quote, In the Christian religion, this identity of the resurrection body with the body that was laid aside at death is of great significance. In this respect, it is, in the first place, diametrically opposed to all dualistic theories according to which the body is merely an incidental dwelling place or prison of the soul. The essence of a human being consists, above all, in the most intimate union of soul and body in a single personality. The soul by nature belongs to the body, and the body by nature belongs to the soul. Although the soul does not itself create the body, it nevertheless has its own body. The continuity of an individual human being is maintained as much in the identity of the body as in the identity of the soul. End of quote. Now, why is that so important? Why do I read that? Because what the full preterist teaches is Neoplatonism. It's a deny, they not only deny all the efficacy of Christ's salvation, the full effect of it, they not only deny the resurrection of the body and by implication the resurrection of Christ and the power of his resurrection, but they deny the meaning of what a true human being is by implication. So it's heretical in all three fronts. <clears throat> Therefore, one can logically conclude not only that the full preterist by implication denies the bodily resurrection of Christ, and this assertion is precisely what Paul argues in 1 Corinthians 15, 12-14. Look, if you deny the resurrection of the body, then you're essentially saying that Christ didn't rise from the dead. Because for Paul, the Christ resurrection, we're united with Christ in his resurrection, and, and that is the reason we rise. So he's saying you're denying a crucial aspect of salvation. But also, you're denying the biblical meaning and extent of our Lord's salvation. With all this in mind, let us now turn our attention to Revelation 21, 1-8. Okay, that's all introductory material, and I think it's important. I want you to see what they're doing and how their theology is twisting and affecting and perverting their exegesis of Scripture. Remember, interpretation, two things are critical. The analogy of Scripture, you want to know what everything says about this topic in the whole Bible before you interpret a single passage. The analogy of Scripture is critical. They pervert that. And then you, want to, you have to look at the context an allusion to an Old Testament passage doesn't mean that the, the modern allusion means exactly the same thing if the context says something different. There's, there's similarity, but not identity. Now let's look at the new heavens and the new earth. With the resurrection and final judgment complete, John receives a vision of the beginning of the final state, the time of Yahweh's rule and of peace, justice, perfect righteousness, and communion. Verse 1, Now I saw a new heavens and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away. Now, in our preliminary consideration, we noted how the expression of new heaven and a new earth can refer to the triumph of Christ's gospel and history 
as the Great Commission is a success and nations bow down before Christ and implement a godly law order? They follow the law of God? Okay, that's what we need in America right now. Such a state involves great covenant blessings, even though sin and death remain on earth. In Revelation 21, the context indicates that the ultimate goal of Jesus' redemptive work is consummated or brought to completion by the Savior's literal bodily return to planet Earth. Now, the first question this verse calls to mind is, how is the consummate heaven and earth new? Does this vision teach a complete annihilation of the present universe so that it will be replaced by something completely new? Some Christians think this way due to the Old Testament passages that speak of the dissolution of heaven and earth. For example, Psalm 102, 26. They will perish, but you will endure. Or Isaiah 34, 4 and 51, 6. And especially 2 Peter 3, 7 to 10. But the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens and the earth will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. In addition, didn't Jesus say heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away? Matthew twenty-four thirty-five. Well, there are a number of reasons as to why this passage teaches a renovation to perfection, not a completely brand new creation. So we'll consider that. First, the word new. There's two words for new in Greek. This word, kainos, used here does not mean absolutely new, like if you want to buy a brand new car, but new in comparison to the old. Like you buy a 67 Mustang and somebody's rebuilt the engine and give, you got a new transmission. John describes a transformation, not an ex nihilo creation. Just as our old bodies are transformed and glorified at our resurrection, the fallen universe in order will be transformed and perfected at the second coming. Same creation, transformed but and perfected. Now the earth, as we know, is beautiful even in its fallen state. Go to Yosemite. Go to Yellowstone. Go to the Grand Canyon. Or just drive through the desert. Look at the mountains. Yet it has been corrupted by sin, evil in their effects. The devil tempted Adam and Eve, making righteous, God-glorifying dominion over this world impossible without a Savior. A second victorious Adam. Remember, God's original goal for mankind was a God-glorifying civilization. Without sin, without death. But Adam failed, the first Adam. Second, the language of Second Peter regarding the elements melting with fervent heat and the heavens being dissolved is not speaking about physics or a literal material destruction, but rather is using prophetic language of cosmic destruction to describe the dissolution of the old order of sin, rebellion, evil, and their consequences. And we know this by the analogy of Scripture. In Romans, Paul describes it as being set free from its bondage to decay, 8.19-22. God has no intention of discarding or annihilating the creation. He created it. What did he say about it? It is very good. There's no reason to destroy it. You need to get rid of what evil has happened. God has no intention of discarding it. 
He rather through Christ intends to save it and return it to its original God-glorifying purpose. Paul tells us that by him, this is Colossians 1.16, by him all things were created that are in heaven and earth, that are, that are in heaven and that are on earth. All things were created through him and for him. For who? For Christ. God will reconcile all things to himself on earth and in heaven through Christ and his sacrificial blood. Colossians 1.20 What occurred definitively at the cross, remember he said it is finished, he achieved the victory in the empty tomb, and spreads progressively throughout planet earth during the new covenant age, will be completed and perfected at the second coming. Christ's saving work will have an ultimate consummation. Remember, Paul explicitly speaks of the deliverance of the whole creation. Those are his words in Romans 8, 19-22. The whole creation will be redeemed, restored, renovated, perfected. And Peter's words on this topic are specific. This is from his sermon in Acts 3.21. Jesus Christ, whom heaven must receive until the times of the restoration of all things. All things will be restored. If everything is to be restored, it will not be annihilated. Since the world was created to proclaim the glory of God and to manifest his attributes and goodness, and this is not perfectly accomplished in this fallen order, it is logical and necessary that a time of full restoration, consummation, and perfection must come. You have to understand, full preterism, yes, exegetically it's terrible. Exegetically it's false. Exegetically it's wrong, it's a heresy. But it's also totally wrong theologically, logically, and philosophically. If you know your theology. And this involves nothing less than paradise restored. Before the fall there was no sin, rebellion, suffering, or death. None. Adam lived in intimate communion with God, and he walked and talked with God in, the, God in the garden. When Jesus returns, the tabernacle of God is with man, and he will dwell with them. Revelation 21.3 Before the fall, fear, pain, crying, suffering, and death were non-existent. They didn't exist. After Jesus returns... In the new creation, there shall be no more death. This is Revelation 21.4. No more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, nor pain. For the former things have passed away. Now, if you want to try to apply that to the gospel era, what, what does it mean that there's no more death? What does it mean that there's no more pain or suffering? Christians die all the time. Christians suffer like crazy. Christians go through all kinds of terrible things. They die of cancer. In some lands, they're persecuted and tortured and put to death. That, that can't be applied to the gospel era. It has to be applied to the perfect state. The full preterist must take what Revelation 21 says and treat it as hyperbolic or simply a great poetic or metaphorical exaggeration of what Jesus accomplished by his redemption. In other words, it doesn't mean what it says. It means what we have to make it say because it has to fit into a 70 AD paradigm. According to their theory, it does not mean that Jesus' victory will result in absolute righteousness on earth or the full deliverance of creation from the effects of the fall. 
for such teaching cannot be harmonized with an AD 70 fulfillment of everything. What a terrible position to be in. All these rich, glorious passages about the consummation must be completely redefined because they don't believe in it. They, they take Christ's salvation and they make it much less than it really is. It's a heresy. According to them, it simply refers to the conversion of Christians or to the dominance of Christianity eventually in a new world order. They essentially must take the post-millennial victory language of Isaiah 65 and impose its meaning on Revelation 21 as if they teach the exact same thing when they clearly do not. Revel uh, Isaiah 65 makes it explicitly clear that death still exists, sin still exists, the curse still exists, people are dying, women are having babies. If you die and you're 100 years old, you'll, you'll be considered cursed, you'll be considered a covenant breaker. That's not, you don't find that in Revelation 21. The only thing they have in common is in, in Isaiah 65, it does say that God's going to wipe away their tears. But that's one thing. But it's another thing to say that death doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> While Isaiah describes great covenant blessings, it also speaks of birth, children, aging, offspring, sinners, dying, old men, building homes, planting vineyards, and sinners being accursed. Revelation 21, which obviously alludes to Isaiah 65, leaves all such preconsummate descriptions behind. There are none. The progress and blessings of Jesus' redemption in the millennium or new covenant era will lead to complete and perfect victory at the second coming of Christ. Now, that's not simply my opinion. That's the position of the Westminster Standards, the First and Second Helvetic Confession, uh, the Belgic Confession, uh, you name it. The ancient church, the medieval church, the reformed church, the Episcopal church. The, this is the position of Christianity throughout all the ages. So we're, we're, are we to suppose that the church had it wrong for almost 2,000 years, and then somebody from a heretical, horrible church, the Church of Christ is totally heretical and horrible. They're Arminian for one thing. They came up with the truth in the 1800s, and now we're all supposed to bow the knee to that some recent doctrine, like Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses. It's terrible stuff. We're going to stop there. I know, realize a lot of that was introductory, but I, I wanted to bring that up because you have to understand what they do. They take passages that apply to the preconsummate age, and they take passages that are obviously discussing the consummate age, the perfection, and they, they mix them all together. They, they make them say the same thing when they do not. But we'll stop there. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for your holy word. We thank you. Jesus achieved a perfect victory. We will be saved, body and soul. We look forward to our resurrection. We look forward to all those Christians that have died and their bodies are rotting away. They've turned to dust. To seeing them in their bodies again. We look forward to the time when there is no more death. We look forward to the time when this, this world is perfected. We don't have to worry about Lyme disease. We don't have to worry about getting cancer. We don't have to worry about being murdered or theft. The time of perfection is coming because Christ achieved it through his redemptive work. We thank you, Jesus, for your perfect cosmic salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.